Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today's Spirit in Action guest is Jory Lewis, and she is the author of Slaves for Peanuts, a story of conquest, liberation, and a crop that changed history. In the book, Jory explores culture, history, environment, economic systems, religion, and slavery in its West African context, opening our eyes to the way the world has really worked and is still working. She is a masterful storyteller, conveying the facts faithfully, but at the same time giving us an experience of the people and events that evokes the same connection and feelings of epic poems, like those of the griot of West African tradition. Jory is an environmental journalist who splits her time between Senegal, West Africa, and Illinois, USA. She is also a contributing editor with Adi Magazine, a literary magazine covering global politics. Be sure to listen to the full Uncut for Broadcast interview on northernspiritradio.org. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance. We go now via Zoom to Dakar, Senegal in West Africa to speak to Jory Lewis. Jory, what a delight to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. I wish I was with you. I haven't been to Senegal since 1979. I was there in, it was probably November of that year. How long have you been there? I have been in Senegal since 2011 with a small break. Well, 2019 through 2020, and then the pandemic hit me. But <laughs> So about 10 years, just over 10 years. Part of the intro that I read about you said that you divide your time between Senegal and Illinois. And as everyone knows, they're not next door to each other. How often do you get to Illinois? I try to come twice a year and spend a month or two, especially with my parents who are getting a little bit older, need some help. So we have a major connection between us because of our connections to West Africa in general. My two years as Peace Corps volunteer in Togo and my traveling around, including spending a week in Dakar, have familiarized me with a lot of the culture that exists there since I was in the Peace Corps back in the 1970s. Your book, Slaves for Peanuts, goes so deep into the history of the area, really back, you know, 300 years and drawing on roots before that. Were you uh, an African history major or something? How did you learn this and how many books did it take? I feel like the immense amount of research that went into this book is truly amazing. Oh, thanks for that. I was not an African history major in, in college at the University of Chicago. I studied anthropology of Caribbean mostly. It's a French Caribbean, so that kind of justifies my interest in French colonies or former French colonies. Say like Martinique, I was like a specialist on Martinique. The first head of state, Amy Césaire, who's from Martinique, had a close affiliation with Senegal's first head of state, Leopold Sédar Senghor. So I think I had kind of Senegal always on my mind, but like peripherally, it was never really the center of things. And you know, I, I can't really say exactly how I ended up not going into a doctoral anthropology program. I went to journalism school instead. I was working on environmental issues, and especially in the global south 
myself. So, and, and I'd done like a fair number of projects. And after that, my sort of career as a America-based freelancer, doing mostly radio actually at the time, I'd done a couple of trips to Senegal and some other African countries. And then I had this opportunity to apply for this really unique fellowship for two years, not the Peace Corps, which is a fellowship, but it is a two-year experience to live and write about a, another country. So this thing called the Institute of Current World Affairs. So they sent me to Senegal. I proposed Senegal because I did speak French already. And Senegal, it's an easy country to sort of gain access to. It's an open country. It's, I don't know, when you've done projects in many other places, you start to understand how, even though there's a lot of bureaucracy and problems there, that it's just like it's easier to penetrate, you know, the bureaucracy of Senegal. And it's a much more accessible place than many other sort of West African countries anyway, or I would venture to say many other African countries in general. People are really much more open about things like this. And the press is a little bit more free than many other places. And in some ways, it was a easier a nexus of communication connection with a lot of Africa right? For coming down from France, certainly, but because it's right there on the coast of the Atlantic, you know, relatively easily accessible. I mean, it's not as easily accessible as Morocco or something, the, the northern, the Arab countries, but I can see why you would do that. It, it felt more cosmopolitan, open, accepting when I went through there. And again, that was already 40 years ago, but <laughs> I have no doubt it's changed too. But yeah, then your other question about how many books I read, I mean, just hundreds, I think, right? You know, hundreds of books on many different things. I remember once I had a friend order a book for me and it was it's this ridiculous tome called like Peanut Science and Technology. And she's like, did you make a mistake? Is this like something you wanted? And I'm like, yes, I need peanut science and technology. Okay, so, and then yes, like lots of books on West African history or Senegalese history. But of course, because Senegal our understanding what is Senegal is a modern day concept. So like we can't look back into history and separate it only into countries that were determined by European powers. But so you have to have a, a little bit of a broader sweep to look at the whole kind of region of West Africa to understand fully what was happening. Yeah. For instance, you refer regularly instead of just to Senegal, you refer to Senegambia. And I hadn't heard that term before, although of course, geographically, it makes sense because the way Gambia is embedded there. There's a lot about Africa that I learned here. The griot, as they're known, the storytellers, as we might call them. I'm not sure in European tradition what their equivalent is. Bards. The bards, yes. They'd be the bards. How do you capture their stories? Are they written down in books? So, you know, because Senegal has this really interesting history as being like kind of occupied fairly early on by colonial powers. And then because it's so agreeable, also the climate's so nice, you know, they made the capital here. So there have always been a number of French, especially researchers sort of writing down like lore, fables and oral histories. And then, you know, a fair number, there was a sort of new generation in the 70s and 80s of Senegalese historians also kind of recovering those stories. So a fair number of what you would now call like epic stories, sort of epic poems, they are in fact epic poems, are in fact an amalgam of these griot stories. So I think those have been recorded either originally by some sort of French person who had an interest in, I don't know, like the storytelling and rhetoric of Wolf Griot's, and then later also by many local historians who even recorded them in, in Wolof often. 
you mentioned language of Wolof and the fact you speak French. My impression is that you must speak 20 different languages, according to what I read in the book. Of course, I realize you have to depend on other translators. It's not possible to do all of that. But it's pretty impressive already what you have comprehension of, uh, even to pronounce all the names. <laughs> My wolf is like broken wolf. It's like pigeon wolf or something. You know? <laughs> My language list is really French is the most robust one, Portuguese and, uh, you know, just pigeon wolf, basically. <laughs> you know? Well, let's get to the subject matter of Slaves for Peanuts, a story of conquest, liberation and a crop that changed history. I'm trying to figure which was the chicken, which was the egg in getting this going. At some point, I think it must have been Walter Taylor who was the egg or chicken at the beginning of the whole thing, because the whole thing really crystallizes around him. But I just made that up based on my experience of reading the book. Where did it start for you? Why this book? Why this story? Why these cast of characters? Well, you will be shocked to know that Walter Taylor was a late addition <laughs> to the book. The book, when I wrote the proposal, did not include Walter Taylor in it. You asked earlier about the number of books I read, but there are also, I used a lot of primary documents. So archives from in France and Senegal and Sierra Leone, and a lot of different places. The original sort of cast of characters, I learned that the breadth of the archive wasn't sufficient to create because my goal was to create a narrative that was kind of how I see it as my value add because I'm not a historian. I wanted to write a story that was like immersive, that was telling us in as close as possible to this kind of, let's call it like a first person. And yeah, telling an engaging story and like taking the reader along with the character and immersing them in that narrative. So that's what I wanted to do. And I realized early on that at least one of the characters I had initially thought I would use when I wrote the proposal, like it just wasn't enough because to create that kind of narrative, you just need a lot of source documentation. You can't do it with just a few handfuls. And then there was another character I was interested in, but in fact, that person, I, I realize now that it was just after I signed my contract, the Senegalese National Archives closed for nearly two years. And there was a kind of a, you know dossier about this particular person and I couldn't access it. You know? So I didn't know what was in it. I couldn't tell if I was going to be able to make it work. And then I found a reference to Walter Taylor in a different book I was reading. And I was just sort of blown away that number one, there was this thing called the Shelter for Runaway Slaves, which Walter Taylor established, and that he was a Black missionary in 19th century Senegal from an Anglophone country in a French colony. And there were just all these things. And then when I found out that he originally came to Senegal working as an accountant, for someone exporting peanuts, I was like, oh, he's the person who can hold the whole thing together. But the book was, I had a kind of big conceptual idea to begin with that I wanted to write about this link between this period of history that I didn't know so well. Of course, I knew there had been enslavement in Africa, of course, but I didn't know why there had been this strange uptick in enslavement around the introduction of peanut agriculture on a commercial scale. And I wanted to tell that story uh, in an engaging way to a broader audience. And I suppose you didn't choose millet because there were plantations of millet as well, because that wasn't as big an export crop. Is that the difference? Uh, peanuts going to France to make their soap, which blows my mind. It seems a very vital enterprise that changed that area in Africa, but not millet. 
Well, actually, I mean, there's a very good book by a, an amazing historian whose work I use quite a lot, an American historian, James Searing, who wrote quite a lot, actually, about Millet's place and a kind of earlier relationship to the slave trade. It's a little bit complicated. There's a kind of market for or a, a kind of absorption of enslaved people to grow millet in the same way for a coastal trade for provisions, right? So provisioning cities, provisioning ships. But that's not really the reason why millet millet didn't continue to kind of become a motor of an international economy. It didn't have that same kind of global heft so that it didn't have as much of a long leg. You know, I think, of course, Senegal must produce a lot of millet, but almost none of it's for export. Whereas Senegal still is a top 10 producer of peanuts in the world, and a good deal of it is still for export, right? So like, that's still something we have to kind of reckon with and think about. And it, it's an effect that has a, a long tail. But why did Jory Lewis want to write this book at all with Walter Taylor or without slaves, peanuts? It's talking about slavery, basically, instead of in the U.S., where I'm used to it being focused, it's talking about it within Africa. And for a lot of people, that'll be a surprise that it existed there in, in that form, as opposed to the chattel slavery we had in the U.S. So why did you want to write this book? You know, I think the I sort of tell a story in the preface that kind of gets at it a little bit. I am an environmental journalist. I'm an environmental journalist who writes a lot about agriculture because that's just what I'm interested in. I think that, you know, I've always been interested in this like intersection between how we think about our environment, how we use our environment. And agriculture is actually one of those key ways that the cultural and all the meanings of the term culture kind of meet with the environment. So I had been through this fellowship spending a lot of time in the peanut basin because my fellowship was to write and think about food security in West Africa in general. I first went in 2011. This is after a kind of key spike in commodity prices that had happened a couple of years previously. So there was a lot of attention to thinking about like how fragile the sort of food security was in the region for all the different reasons. And I was interested in thinking about and, and spending a lot of time in the peanut basin just because, again, the peanut is one of Senegal's major crops and it was still a major form of foreign exchange for Senegalese farmers, right? So, and I was trying to understand why, you know, and I have maybe, maybe I have also some kind of personal affinity for the peanut. So it was just interesting to me to think about all these peanuts being grown in one place. And then, you know, spending a lot of time in this area where a lot of peanuts were being grown, you know, I had an experience where this particular community, they were creating a farmer's collective to kind of move, in fact, move away from peanut farming solely to grow a high value vegetable crop together. And they were forming a collective to do that. And the person who I thought and many of let's say outsiders to the community thought would be the best person to lead this collective was a man who was apparently descended from enslaved individuals and then was excluded from being considered for leadership because of that. I didn't know that he was descended from an enslaved family. I hadn't really thought that was a thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, of course, I knew that there had been slavery in Africa. I knew that there were, you know, there's all kinds of language and will up to and, you know, people sort of using that word slave in a dismissive way, but it felt like, or even there's this thing people do 
you know, if you have a certain name, they have they call it joking cousins. You know, so if you're you're an Ajay and you're a Jope, the other's a Jope, they'll say, ah, Jope, Jope, you're my slave, you know. And it's like a it's a typical kind of just joking people do when they meet each other, you know. And so there's there's a, a lot of language about enslavement, but I I hadn't given it a lot of thought actually about what that meant. And so, yeah, having that experience, like thinking, oh, okay, well, there's this man who's descended from enslaved people. God only knows how long ago they were enslaved. I don't know. But still, he's in a way suffering. He's losing out on opportunities today because of that history, because of that legacy. Didn't make any sense to me. I'm also a descendant of enslaved people. And I think, I, I think I've think i said that. I said that to people. I'm like, well, I'm you know a descendant of enslaved people. Would you exclude me from leadership? But of course, I don't live in the village and that's not. And it's different somehow, right? There's this difference being like the kind of money of America washes you, right? <laughs> like, you know, even though, yeah, I'm not wealthy by any means. Well, no, wait, wait, compared to whom? Yeah, that's true. I was in the Peace Corps, right? And people knew me as a rich person, even though from U.S. point of view, I was at best, you know, lower middle class or upper lower class, worker class, you know, that's where I came from. And so it's still in my village, course I had money compared to other people because That's true. could buy what I wanted to eat or whatever. My choices were not limited. That is of course true. People call Americans, whether you're white or black, and it's sort of offensive. They call them tubops, right? So like tubop means white men. But even when you're a, a black American, I still get called tubop even after all these years. Sometimes they're like, ah, tubop, you know, like, okay, thank you for that. <laughs> and in Togo, the, the word is yovo. One of my friends, Peace Corps friends, uh, who's black, she was just so excited to get to Africa and finally not be the second class American or whatever. And so she was so offended when she got there because they called her a Yovo too. It's like, no, I'm I'm finally with my people, right? But anyway, it was it, it's hard to not fit. Yeah. So there's a way in which, like, even though of course the Black Americans have a or most of them have a shared history of enslavement, that that it doesn't sort of count in that context, right? So yeah, I think that I was interested in this as an idea. I had done some sort of loose reading around, you know, just basic. You know, when I moved to Senegal, of course, I, I read a lot of history books. Slavery had been mentioned, but then once I started kind of thinking about this experience I had in this region, this peanut growing region called Saloum, I do remember meeting with this other historian who had been doing some research on this and also supervising a couple of doctoral students who've been doing the research at like, you know, trying to get that dissertation just because I was like, I want to know more about what are these villages? Who are these people? And, you know, this particular doctoral student had even found a number of like so-called enslaved villages, people of enslaved people, and they were descendants, of course, not still active, but like people in the region still knew them. They're like, oh, you come from that village, then you're a descendant of, of enslaved people because you come from that village. So there were a number of these cases and like trying to understand their different histories. And they did actually have different histories. Some of them were villages of maybe they had come from other places and then settled in that region because it's a region that had a lot of in-migration, especially in the early 20th century, because they were growing peanuts <laughs> and some people from other areas, maybe the region that I spoke of in my book, you know, brought their enslaved people with them. Sometimes they were enslaved people who people just knew they were enslaved, but they had no affiliation. So there was a kind of like speculation in the air sometimes, you know, and sometimes there yeah, were just various different types of statutes or reasons why they became known as like the villages of enslaved people. 
the reason that I think in the end determined that I wanted to speak with you, that I wanted to read this book, was because of the issue of slavery. And I feel like in the United States, with its intense racism and the history of racial prejudice, there's a big problem to be dealt with. The concern that I have is I don't think we're sure how to deal with it, how to go to something different. And I thought that having a wider view of what slavery means in the world, in history, we've got one idea of what slavery is, but it's a really much bigger thing with history all over the world. So that's why I had to have Jory Lewis, Slaves for Peanuts, here today. Talk about slavery, what you've learned about it, Jory. And again, I want lessons for the world and specifically for the U.S. because somehow you're mentioning that people in those villages are still referred to as, you know, they're the descendants of, they're the untouchables, right? They're, whatever it is, in some ways, they're carrying the onus of slavery after generations of not being enslaved. You know, actually, I think that maybe Americans know more about a kind of global history of slavery than they think. Like, you know, I told you earlier that I grew up in a very religious household. And so I grew up watching like the Ten Commandments, right? <laughs> you know, with, uh, who is it? Charlton Heston or something. But I mean, you know, of course, like in the Bible, there's this conversation about the people of Israel being enslaved in Egypt and all the things that had to happen for them to be free, right? Or watching another Charlton Heston great, right? Is it Charlton Heston? Like Ben-Hur? Don't ask me why I know all these these movies from the 1950s. <laughs> You're too young to know them. <laughs> <laughs> it's my parents. I think they were they were like reliving their own youth or something, like making us watch these things, you know. <laughs> and of course, right, Ben Hur. There's also uh, in ancient Rome. There's also a quite vast and broad enslaved population. So I think that just through popular culture, in fact, we do know that there are other ways enslavement is lived or has been lived throughout time. So in America, as in Africa, I always like to say that there are, of course, different gradations. There are different ways in which slavery is lived or was lived, that we have a tendency to believe it's just this kind of plantation slavery is the only kind this is of chattel. So it's not just chattel slavery, which means like that you are owned by an individual and your progenitor are also owned, right? So it's this full bodily slavery but we also have this vision of plantation slavery, like a very intense plantation slavery, whereas there were a number of places even in the United States where people were on smaller lands, where there was a enslavement. I, I don't want to say, I'm not saying that people are like having a happy enslavement, but that our vision of what enslavement is, is kind of unnecessarily sort of colored by the most extreme example, if that makes sense. So in Africa as well, there were many different types of slavery. There were, in some cases, the kind of things that are close to plantation systems. Traditionally, in this part of West Africa, there are two types of, let's call them two to three types of enslaved people. You have what they call like trade slaves, and that's what's closest to our American understanding of enslavement. So people who are typically captured probably in a war and then can be traded for other things, for iron, for horses, for millet, maybe for gold, whatever, right? So those people are in fact functioning as money. Then there are this other type of enslaved person called the slave of the house, right? So a house slave. I don't like to say it like that, but that is what it is. 
And typically, those enslaved people had a status that's closer to kinship, right? So they were not allowed to be sold. You know, that would be very shameful, you know, because it'd be like selling your children, right? You know, so then a trade slave could become a house slave over the course of their life or their child's life. You know, so there are these things, these categories were also not rigid or fixed. And then there's a kind of third category as like an administrative captivity. It's, that's a very complicated set. I don't usually like to get into it. I've mentioned it briefly in the book, and it's a little bit of a different case. So there's this idea of integration in the kind of African form of slavery that's more accessible to the enslaved person, even though that integration doesn't mean you're going to be, say, like the equal of the master eventually. It just means you integrate into the hierarchy. So it's still like the way these people that I met still kind of lived a history of being descended from enslaved individuals is related to that kind of caste association with enslavement, right? So that even though they're free and their children, <laughs> their parents had been free, maybe their grandparents had been free, they still kind of marked by a kind of association within the hierarchy of the society. Whereas in America, that question of integration was not as accessible. Of course, there were some slaves who were able in America to buy themselves out of servitude and maybe even own slaves themselves, as was the case in many different places, especially in the South and in you know, Virginia or in Savannah, you hear cases of different types of people. And I think it's also kind of relatively, you know, it's a case you hear about in other places also. So like in Haiti or in Brazil, you sometimes hear about people who had been enslaved who buy themselves out of slavery and then acquire property and maybe slaves themselves. So there's the kind of root out of slavery, the possibility of buying yourself out of slavery, which is very similar to the system that's in Africa, but that in America, especially in the United States of America, became more rigid. It was less accessible to many people. And then the question of integration into the larger society is also a little bit fraught because we have, you know, in America, we had essentially like racial slavery. So slaves were black, you know, in the kind of reverse association, you think it wasn't true that in the South, then Black people must be slaves. But even though, of course, there were free Blacks, so that, that kind of complicates the matter and means that integration, like a full integration, isn't really possible or wasn't really possible. Folks, we're speaking with Jory Lewis today. She is the author of Slaves for Peanuts, a story of conquest, liberation, and a crop that changed history. She's an independent writer. Her studies were in anthropology, and uh, she's rich in that, including the stories, the cultural tellers of stories from Africa. In French, we say griot. I suppose we say griot in English. I don't know. <laughs> but it's got a T at the end. I don't know. Anyway, she draws on a wealth of information to convey an important story. I'll get to some of the details of that, Jory, which includes how this is connected with your environmental concerns, because we haven't really talked about that. But there's a fair amount more about slavery I want to talk about after I let our listeners know that they are tuned in to Spirit in Action. This is a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web, nordenspiritradio.org, with all 16 and a half years of our guests all across the country. They're broadcast on community radio stations. So there's some 42 stations carrying our Northern Spirit radio programs across the U.S. Please remember to support those stations. Local independent reporting, like what Jory Lewis does, is so vital for our country because so much of it is top-down and controlled and you have to have be with the message of either the corporate owners or the directors of your 
particular station or newspaper. Anyway, remember to support those on the site for Northern Spirit Radio. You can find a link, for instance, to jorylewis.com, J-O-R-I-L-E-W-I-S.com. We have links to all of our guests of the past 16 and a half years on the site. We have a place where you can post comments. We love two-way communication. And you can also donate to support this. This work is supported not by corporations, not by government, but by you, the listener. So NorthernSpiritRadio.org, you help us out there. So I want to talk some more about slavery. Um, one of the pieces of it that I got from this book, I had heard reference to it before. My understanding, historically, by the way, the slavery that we had in the U.S., actually there were white and black kind of indentured servitude from the very beginning in the U.S. Because slavery, even though we think of about the plantation mode that you were just talking about, Jory, there has actually been a lower class, which was at the beck and call and control of their betters, right? And in India, there was always the untouchables who couldn't leave their class. And so it wasn't just a question of skin color like we had in the U.S., which made racial slavery, made it, I think, easier to control. Uh, you didn't have to know if a person was a slave, you could look at their skin and say, aha, you've got that onus on you. So slavery started from the U.S., but at one point it included some white people, but then no, it's going to be just the dark-skinned people and on from there. And there's slavery with Native Americans as well. So it's complex because from Africa, there were Africans selling their continent mates, their countrymen, whatever, into slavery because slavery already existed in Africa before the whites started capitalizing it. I think that's true. One of the things that you refer to, Jory, is that there seems to be a fair amount of Muslim trade in slaves. I didn't hear that to the same degree. I think it must have been in Benin, for instance, all, all on the Gold Coast there, or in the Bight of Benin, there was a lot of slavery. A biggest chunk of it came actually from that area. So talk about slavery in the history of Africa, or specifically maybe West Africa. As I mentioned earlier, there had always been enslavement in many societies, right? Like I think probably every single society in the world, almost, you know, maybe not every single society, but many societies across the world on every continent, apart from Antarctica, probably had a form of slavery of some kind, right? A kind of unfree labor, whether we parse it as full slavery or indenture or pawning or corvée, like so there are all these words that something existed. So of course in West Africa there were slaves before the white people came to the coast. And there had always been you know, I don't know, always, right? I actually don't know when the trans-Saharan slave trade began, but of course, it's much older than the transatlantic just by its very nature, because of course, the trans-Saharan slave trade probably existed as long as there was a trans-Saharan trade caravan, because there had always been slaves. But I always like to point out, too, that the transatlantic slave trade, so once the, you know, first the sort of Portuguese and like people from the Iberian Peninsula started sailing down the coast of West Africa, trading with people on the coast who might have some kind of association with people in the interior, but didn't necessarily like 
feel like they were they had like common cause with people in the interior. Maybe the, they felt like some people in the interior were their enemies. <laughs> so there's all of that that's kind of mixed in. But the kind of production of enslaved people is when people are, are enslaved following typically wars. Mostly wars are the biggest kind of net gatherer of people to be enslaved. And then after, you know, some association with people who are called criminals or sorcerers or whatever, right? So like all of those people are kind of the pool of individuals who might be later sent as trade slaves. But the coming of the kind of Europeans to the coastal West Africa destabilized the kind of center of power. So destabilized like the relationships of people within coastal West Africa. So then people on the coast, maybe before they didn't have so much, you know, like they had fish, they had maybe salt, they would trade, but they didn't really have very many resources. Suddenly, like they're getting special fabrics and ceramics and maybe iron rods, right, from these white people on the coast. And that shifts a little bit the balance of power with people in the interior who, who might have before had more valuable objects of trade, including like gold, maybe, right? That tipping, like any kind of tipping of balance of power, any change shift in the balance of power, many more sort of wars started to arise. This kind of production of enslaved people accelerated. I can't tell you how much it accelerated, but every scholar in West Africa would probably say the same, that there was a, a net acceleration in the production of enslaved people once the transatlantic slave trade started, even though there was slavery before it altered how much slavery there was. That radically enhances our understanding about slavery in the big picture. When the transatlantic slave trade was abolished, first it was prohibited in one or two or other places. I mean, there's Britain, France, and the United States, and actually there's South American countries as well who are engaging in this. All of these countries have been engaging in it, and one by one, some of them shut that down. In addition, there was the fact that France determined that on French lands, you can't have slaves. Well, there were various districts, even though I think that was before overall Senegal or Gambia would have been considered a full colony of France's. That kind of grew over the course of decades. So they had the rule that you can't have slaves on French land. I, I guess maybe that's an offshoot of the French Revolution. I'm not sure. The point being that there was this tension. Finally, the other countries, the European countries, the U.S., are getting rid of slavery, but it's still happening in Africa. There's a kind of a delayed response, maybe. What's your take on that? So you're talking about two different when I was so the, the first is the end of the slave trade, which happens in like 1807-1808 for the British and the Americans, and then progressively happens for other countries. And then abolition of slavery itself, which also happens progressively. So from you know 1833 for the British, 1848 for the French, and then eventually America and Brazil and all these places later in the century. So the French had, you know, the created law. Slavery was abolished by law. And the statute does say that no slavery should exist on French land. And not only that, the French soil should free those who step upon it. So at the time of the French declaration in 1848, French land in what's now Senegal, Senegambia, was mostly just two places. So Saint Louis, which is in the north of Senegal, and Gore 
So even at that time, Dakar wasn't a part of French land. So progressively, the French acquired territory. And when they were directly administering those territories, they had to apply their own laws. In the book, I sort of talk about this dance between the kingdom of Kajor, which is really just in the middle, you know, that separates Saint-Louis from Goree. You know, they sort of try to annex it sometimes and they're like, no, and then, you know, they their hands off because they don't want to implement their own laws, not only that, but also they don't want the costs associated with directly administering such a large territory. And so that's part of the progress that is actually mentioned, some of it very directly, some of it indirectly in Slaves for Peanuts by Jory Lewis. Let's talk about peanuts now, Jory. The thing that's important to me is probably the role that the peanut played in terms of, and, and there's this whole technology and culture around the peanut which raised its importance and viability in this area, in the sand country there, right? The the people of the sand. In the U.S., my understanding is that slavery as practiced on the plantations, that was essentially made possible, enhanced, and grew a lot because uh, the thing I learned in grade school was about the cotton gin and the invention of the cotton gin, which allowed them to remove seeds from cotton, made cotton a much more available, less work intensive product, and therefore made immense plantations raising cotton viable. Mm-hmm. And that increased slavery inside the United States. I think that the peanut essentially did that to some degree in West Africa. Does that seem like a fair comparison? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's probably a fair comparison. In the Caribbean, it was sugar and sometimes coffee, but like in, in Haiti, which was before the revolution, the most productive colony ever, like it was the richest colony, I think, in the new world, even compared to the United States, it was sugar, you know, so and they were burning through slaves in Haiti. And it was because of this demand for sugar. And so, yeah, cotton in the southern United States resulted in this kind of broader expansion of enslavement. I imagine also sugar in some places, right? In Louisiana, there are all these sugar plantations and also Florida. So any number of different crops, but principally cotton. And yeah, so the demand for peanuts in West Africa at the time meant that, you know, Senegal wasn't so well peopled. The population wasn't so large. And so in order to put more land into production, they needed workers. And there were already systems in place to bring enslaved people to the coast for various reasons. And those those were heightened, right? And they were heightened also because there are all these destabilizing wars happening in the interior which are happening because also of these kinds of global shifts and all the kind of global reasons why a particular thing happened. Environment was important to you. I mean, there's various stories throughout the book, Slaves for Peanuts. They have their bad years. They have their drought. They waste the land. They do some crop rotation. They don't. What was your hope environmentally for the world in sharing this story? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I've been getting a lot even more attention to the environmental aspect than I thought it would when I wrote the book, you know, because the book is its whole thing for me, right? You know, it's this, I, I, I wove together many different stories where for me, it's this whole, right? But the environmental aspects are subtle in some ways. I was hoping to kind of help the reader make some conclusions about the effects of capitalism, of colonialism, 
of thinking about how individuals and states make choices based on the environmental ravages of both monoculture, but also just like natural disasters. I think I was talking to someone about this. There are a number of mentions of like famines and droughts or natural disasters related to say like pandemics. I talk about like the cholera pandemic, about yellow fever and, you know, all the the kind of resulting relationship that has sometimes to production or to people's ability to have access to trade goods, but including like their staple food. So like millet and all of those things are always related and sometimes drive decisions. So there's a point in the book where one person, one leader who's sort of been holding out against the French actually does negotiate a treaty with them following a drought, right? So he sort of shows you how these environmental sort of happenings are occasionally even weaponized. And let's talk about the... I don't know if he's a central person. He maybe weaves the whole thing together. Again, Walter Taylor is originally from Sierra Leone. He ends up there working as an accountant, bookkeeper, but he becomes a pastor. He gets baptized, and folks should be aware that because the area of Senegal is under control of France, the Catholic Church is what's central, not the Protestant Church. And so he is Christian non-Catholic, which puts him in a minority in a country which is already a minority because the Muslims are a larger share of the population. So there's all of these levels. We follow Walter Taylor as he struggles against the prejudice that says, well, we can save black souls, but for them to become soul savers themselves, well, we don't know if that can be quite possible. There's that whole story of the prejudice that was part of the European mindset, how that affected him. It was important, I assume, to talk about that for you, too. I mean, you're, we're talking about persistence of racism. Yeah, I think that's that is very much there were so many parts of Walter Taylor's story that felt really resonant that we could be looking at Walter Taylor and the yes, in the 1870s, 1880s, but also in the, the 1970s, 1980s, in some ways, that story felt really familiar to me in a way. Walter Taylor was a man from Sierra Leone of liberated African origin, which is a novel term to most Americans, I'm sure. And I think it was to me. His parents had been saved from slave ships and then resettled just outside of Freetown. So this is one of the kind of flows of migration to Sierra Leone and kind of one of the parts that make up what are now called like the Creole population. But a number of these people who were saved from slave ships and resettled kind of had like a slightly different status and were a little bit discriminated against at the beginning also. Walter Taylor grows up in this community also full of people who've been resettled, who have a shared experience of enslavement, the shared experience of dislocation, because they're, they're resettled in this area that's not their own. And eventually some do, his particular village is full of many people who are, who are Yoruba. And some of them do, in fact, go back to the Yoruba countries, to what's now Nigeria. He eventually comes to Senegal. He is working for a merchant who buys peanuts and ships them off to America and then eventually has develops an association with the French Protestant mission, which you're right, is, has a kind of combative relationship with the colonial state, even though just because for French Protestants, even in the 19th century, 
the discrimination against Protestantism and very violent discrimination is is uh, just out of living memory. You know, for many of them, it's like their grandparents who had to migrate to Germany or to England or whatever to escape persecution and to America, obviously to to escape. Uh, yeah, a, a huge amount or went to Canada and to the US uh, to escape persecution. So there's this relationship between, and it was actually very hard for me to understand at first because of course, America is such a Protestant overlay. You know? <laughs> and so it was hard to kind of switch to say like, oh, but why are these Protestants feeling so aggrieved? You know, <laughs> don't they don't they have all the power in the world? But of course they didn't. And they had been, you know, violently persecuted for generations. So Walter Taylor is, of course, Protestant, you know, because he grew up in a British colony where he did go to an, an Anglican back school. So he comes to Saint-Henri and, yeah, he's dealing with a number of kind of layers of discrimination, you know, between the other French Protestant missionary who wants to sort of keep him in a lower position and the colonial government which kind of has a lot of distrust of him because he's Anglophone. There are some conversations about him being a British spy. But anyway, he develops eventually this outreach program to reach out to newly freed people. And then eventually also to people who have come to San Luis in search of their freedom, because in San Luis, they're able to acquire freedom papers to free themselves from enslavement. That becomes the outreach program of the French Protestant mission. But I've always thought that Walter Taylor himself had, given his own background, given the way he grew up in this community of people who had been also liberated, who had been enslaved and liberated, who knows for how long, you know, that, that they had been enslaved because the... I think we have a tendency to think, oh, people were only enslaved and then like shipped off on boats across the ocean. But that's not true. Sometimes people would have been enslaved for a number of years within the area before eventually being sold to be shipped off to, you know, Brazil or Cuba or to South Carolina or wherever, you know. So these people had a kind of shared experience of trauma. So I think that Walter Taylor really did see a, you know, net benefit for establishing a community of recently freed people to both help them navigate the new world they find themselves in or they found themselves in, but also just to create a community of support. Actually, I found it very interesting. In addition to the little village, village right outside of San Luis that they created, there's talk of hiding slaves in San Luis for whatever period it is before they can declare that they're free. You have to be there for a certain number of days. I found it very interesting that Walter was evidently hiding them or arranging for them to be hid somewhere so that they could survive for enough days before their owner, that the person who claims to own them, could come and take them back. It's very dramatic storytelling, too, that you do. Thank you for that, Jory. Again, we're talking for much longer than is going to fit in 55-minute broadcasts. So remember, folks, come to NordenSpiritRadio.org and hear the full uncut version of this program. I'll have bonus excerpts there, portions of it, which I've excerpted just so that we can keep as much as we can in the broadcast. One thing that I think maybe established also some commonality with you, or maybe it wasn't you who came up with the title, Slaves for Peanuts. I happen to be an inveterate pun lover. Playing with words is favorite. So Slaves for Peanuts, story of conquest, liberation, and crop to change history. Slaves for Peanuts was obviously a play on words. And so I just want to know if you're my soul sister sitting over there in Dakar, Senegal. 
Yeah, I mean, that was my working title when I pitched the book. And yeah, the publisher tried to change the title. And I was like, this is a hill I am going to die on. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I love you, Jory. You got it. That's what I wanted to hear. (laughs) Let's step back and take the overview one more time. When people have had Jory Lewis's book, Slaves for Peanuts, How do you hope their lives live out differently because they've got this piece of Africa, of history, of commerce, of environmental effects? What are you hoping lives differently in their lives having read this book? You know, I think in a way this book, as I mentioned, it's three. We haven't actually spoken about the third sort of storyline, which is the conquest of Kajor and this other character, Latjor. But I like to think that I try to write a kind of hero's history without a hero. Everyone's kind of an anti-hero. Wait, Walter Taylor, he's a hero. Come on. But he, I mean, he's a hero, but he's, are we really okay with Walter Taylor's machinations to make people assimilate in this context, right? Of course, we love Walter Taylor. That's what I'm saying. I think like I wanted to approach this, yes, this hero's history. Even the peanut is both hero and anti-hero, right? The peanut is both delicious and wonderful and also like the motor of colonialism and environmental degradation. But that doesn't mean we detest the peanut. And in the same way for Latjor and also Walter Taylor, who are complicated people, because we are all complicated and complex. We are all both hero and villain sometimes, I think, although villains may be a little bit too strong. <laughs> I think I wanted to bring that complexity. Can we hold both stories in our hands? The story of birth and destruction, of the story of environmental degradation and a wonderful culinary history of delicious peanut-based sauces, you know, like the story of colonialism. And it's not forced conversion, but there's it's a conversion with, let's call it a kind of motivation. And the kind of good that Walter Taylor was trying to do for this community of people who are completely downtrodden and discriminated against. Can we understand all of those things together? That's really my goal is to, as I said earlier, kind of create a kind of engaging, exciting, dramatic history, but that also complicates and brings out how it's possible to live both of those extremes. Part of my experience, having lived in Togo for two years, I'm so thankful for that because it gave me a different perspective on the world, and particularly on my home, where I grew up. I really scared my father, who I didn't write to directly. I wrote to my sister, knowing that my father would see that when I said, hey, I'm, I'm going out with a girl from a village not far from here. I may be bringing her back to Wisconsin with me. My father was racist, no question about it. And so he thought that I probably was referring to a black woman. I happened to be referring to a white Peace Corps volunteer. But I said it that way to get his goat. So my upbringing in a small white city in Wisconsin had to grow by living elsewhere. And I feel like in reading Slaves for Peanuts and traveling with Walter Taylor and with the whole environmental and economic progression that was the peanut in Senegal, I can't help but people see their own place in the world bigger. That's what the Peace Corps did for me. All of a sudden, I knew that I had things that were prejudices of my home, worldviews from my home, that I end up seeing that they're not the world. They're just my one little corner of the world. And I think you do that for people through this book, Jory. Oh, thank you. I really hope that 
yeah, more people have that kind of revelation. <laughs> yeah. It's not easy to write this type of book. It's so uh, media and complex, you know, and it doesn't have a simple kind of way in or a reason why you should care in a way, right? But I think there's so much there. I think you asked earlier on, like, what can Americans learn about slavery? Maybe there's not a specific story about American slavery, but it's about understanding, like, how does our sort of global economy, even in the 19th century, produce demands that create the exploitation of people across the world. Like, how can we be cognizant of that and understand our place in that? So I think like all those things are related, of course, and during American slavery, as you mentioned, it was the demand, it's sort of the industrial revolution and a textile revolution. So in fact, in Europe, you know, these sort of textile companies, textile manufacturers in Northern Europe, even though there was no slavery, there's definitely a relationship between the continuing of American slavery and their own industry. So like, they are trying to wash their hands of slavery, but in fact, still supporting its system. And I think that's exactly the story that's happening in Slaves for Peanuts is that we think we sort of we're done and we're kind of clean, but that we have this responsibility to understand how these systems of production keep recreating themselves. So many wonderful aspects of life, insights into human behavior that you're going to find in Slaves for Peanuts. Again, we've been speaking with Jory Lewis. I haven't said your website often enough, Jory. It is jorylewis.com, J-O-R-I-L-E-W-I-S, jorylewis.com. The link is on northernspiritradio.org. Jory's an independent writer, an environmental journalist. You'll find some wonderful pieces from her on YouTube. I saw one, some reporting that she was doing with Human Rights Watch that's worth connecting with. That's from about 10 years ago. She was part of presentation Unpeopled Terrain, Reorienting Climate Policy. Although, yeah, you were on the call originally and then you're gone. Oh, I've never watched the video. I didn't know I was on it. Oh, my God. Well, you were for uh, like the first minute or two. And then I think the call dropped off. I'm an editor of that literary magazine, and I did mostly put together that particular issue on climate policy. And the magazine is Adi, A-D-I, which I found was interesting because that is the name for the game that some people know as Awari in my village in Togo. Different places, different games are called by different names. Awari, which has 12 buckets, uh, four seeds in each one. You move them around. Yeah, they have that everywhere. <laughs> yeah, in Ghana, that's called Awari. In my village, it's called Adi. Oh, look at that. Uh, my village, where I haven't lived for 40 years. You still have an association. <laughs> still there. Tablik Bo is home to me. Also, you'll see her reporting about food security project in Senegal, all of these are available. I'm going to try and link them via NorthernSpiritRadio.org, the Spirit in Action program we've had Jory here for. There's much more about her that you'd be delighted to learn. I hope someday you can write as engaging a story about your life as you have about Slaves for Peanuts. Thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action, Jory. Thank you so much. Again, the links are on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. We'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every 